0: Good evening. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event hosted by the Institute of Rural Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a Graduate School of National Security and International Affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition costs. One can also audit such a course at a much less cost. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. Today's lecture is a part of our 10th annual Kosciuszko Chair Spring Symposium in honor of Lady Blanca Rosenstiel. This event is sponsored by the Kosciuszko Chair of Polish Studies and the Center for Intermarium Studies. This evening we will be hearing from Dr. John Rajalowski. Dr. Rajalowski has taught history, art history, and geography at University of Alaska Southeast since 2007. Prior to moving to Alaska, he taught history courses at the University of St. Thomas, Hamline University, and Anoka Ramsey College in Minnesota. Dr. Rajalovsky also served as Assistant Project Director at the Center for Nations in Transition at the Hubert H. Humphrey Institute of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota, where he helped design and administer USAID and State Department-sponsored training programs for business, economics, and political science faculty and NGO leaders in Ukraine and East Central Europe. His research and teaching interests are wide-ranging and diverse such as immigration and ethnicity, military history, war and genocide, the impact of technology on the history and geography of the Great Plains and Midwest, local and regional studies, and the history of Poland, Russia, Ukraine, and Central and Eastern Europe. Dr. Rajalowski, welcome and thank you for being with us today.
1: Thank you very much, and thank you to the Institute for hosting me, uh, and welcome to everyone, all of the, uh, to the, miracle of, uh, or maybe minor miracle of technology. Uh, I'm going to talk today about uh, a subject that's interested me for a long time, uh, since I was uh, knee-high, and that is the winged hussars, uh, probably the most famous uh, cavalry force in early modern Europe. And uh, I want to present a a little bit different view of the winged hussars than might be uh, common in... uh, most uh, popular, or even some of the scholarly literature, the, the military forces of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and this is the flag here of the of, of the Crown uh, uh, Commonwealth, in the 16th and 17th centuries, are best known for fielding the formidable and visually spectacular winged hussars. The hussars feature in novels, movies, popular history, and other media. Uh, the hussars are celebrated as a powerful symbol of military prowess but also viewed by others as an anachronism. For some military historians, heavy shock cavalry, like winged hussars, represent an outmoded form of warfare, increasingly irrelevant on early modern battlefields dominated by infantry firearms. Despite this, the armies of the Commonwealth were highly successful, not only against formidable eastern foes such as the Ottoman Turks, but also against modern western-style armies based around formations of pike and muskets such as those of Sweden. This is despite the fact that the Commonwealth fielded armies that were numerically smaller than their opponents, and the Commonwealth itself lacked fortifications and natural defensive barriers enjoyed by its Western counterparts. For a period of 200 years between the mid-1400s and the mid-1600s, which was a period of rapid technological and political change and intensive warfare throughout Europe, no no, no major foreign invader was able to penetrate the core regions of the Commonwealth how was it that small armies based around a seemingly outmoded form of heavy cavalry were able to hold their own against numerically superior foes, including those using tactics and weapons designed specifically to defeat such cavalry? This paper offers an explanation of this apparent conundrum by showing that the armies of the commonwealth and their commanders did far more than line up heavy cavalry and charge, but instead used a combination of troops and tactics to shape the battlefield, and overcome the superior enemy forces time and again. The battle of Klushino or Klushino in 1610 during the Polish Muscovite wars can serve as an introductory example. A small Polish expeditionary force under Hetman Stanisław Zolkiewicz, numbering about 5 to 6000 confronted a combined Swedish Muscovite force of about 40,000 men. The disparity was made even greater by the fact that at the start of the battle only slightly more than half of the Polish troops were on the battlefield with the rest making a forced march to join their commander. Although many of the Muscovite forces were boyar levies, the 5,000 man Swedish contingent consisted of modern professional soldiers led by Jacob de la Garde, one of Sweden's best generals. Despite an almost seven to one numerical advantage, the Swedish and Muscovite forces, rather than surrounding and overwhelming their Polish foes, chose to dig in and create a fortified camp. The Poles, despite being greatly outnumbered, attacked and attacked into the prepared enemy positions. The result was a crushing defeat for the Muscovite and Swedish forces, who suffered heavy losses while the Poles suffered only a few hundred casualties. How could this happen? Why did the larger army choose to create field defenses? How was the smaller army able to overcome such a disparity in numbers made greater by the force multiplier of prepared positions? To help understand this, it's important to look again not only at the Polish hussars but also at the structure of the Commonwealth armies and how Polish commanders employed the hussars and other forces at their disposal. The stunning imagery of the hussars and the fact that contemporary sources tended to emphasize the exploits of the hussars who were recruited from the Commonwealth gentry class and has, has tended to obscure the important facets of the country's military history. This paper seeks to show how the hussars fit into the larger context of Polish military practice. Formed uh, formed in 1386, out of the dynastic union of the Kingdom of Poland and the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, the Commonwealth was a unique political animal in early modern Europe. Whereas monarchical power grew steadily from the late Middle Ages and onward, in much of Eurasia, in Poland, Lithuania, that power was circumscribed by the legislature. the Same, drawn from the country's service gentry. And the service gentry made up, the schlachta made up about 10 to 15 percent of the overall population. Uh, and they, they were in the, in the parliament along with the bishops of the Catholic Church, other ex-officio representatives of major cities. Parliament limited royal power to conduct wars of conquest, oversaw the conduct of foreign policy, approved taxes, and secured the rights of the noble class, which is in more, more properly referred to as an estate uh, rather than a class. Uh, kings had power over royal cities, the Jewish minority, and certain types of commerce, such as mining. Kings also had authority over extensive royal lands. Uh, during times of major warfare, they were considered the commander-in-chief. Of the armed forces, uh, but most importantly of all, the kings were elected by the parliament. Now, the gentry estate, again called the szlachta, were the political class of the Commonwealth. They held most of the major offices, including the military ones. Uh, they served in the army. Uh, the Polish gentry did not hold hereditary titles, and they varied greatly in wealth and status. Uh, so you could have magnates who were extremely wealthy, uh, and then you had poorer gentry who were, you know, essentially farmers with uh, you know, with a little bit of land and a sword. Uh, and though they, they were, however, bound together by a common set of values that emphasized personal honor, physical courage, and Christian virtue. While schlachter could be divided as any, by factions as any group, disputes between individuals and families over points of honor were common. Throughout most of the Commonwealth's history, a common ethos of service provided a cohesive basis for martial leadership. From a strategic standpoint, the Commonwealth was one of Europe's largest countries in the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries. It possessed few natural boundaries in many, in many regions, especially in the eastern borders. It's approximately the, the, the Dnieper Basin, uh, the uh, Moldova, uh, eastern Belarus on a modern map, uh, were, spars- were very sparsely populated. To the southeast, Poland faced the Ottoman Empire and the, Tanar- the, the Tatar Khanate of Crimea. To the east was Muscovy and Russia, uh, to the south the Habsburg Empire, and to the west the princes of Brandenburg and Saxony. Possessing little in the way of a navy, Poland also faced potential threats across the Baltic Sea from Sweden and Denmark. To defend these wide open and far-flung borders, the Polish parliament, careful to keep royal power in check and taxes to a bare minimum, funded only a modest standing army, which ranged from about 5,000 in the mid-1500s Closer to 10,000 by the end of the reign of St- King Stefan Batory, which was uh, f- uh, 1586, up to about 18,000 uh, in the mid-1600s, and the, the, Pol- the, the Polish forces would be divided. Uh, the larger, about two-thirds of the forces were the army of the crown of Poland, and about one-third would be the uh, army of the Grand Duchy, so there were two, two separate sections of unequal size. Finally, the country lacked extensive fortifications, except at a few key locations in and around major cities. But how then did the Commonwealth defend itself from an array of powerful neighbors? In 1598, an English merchant acting as an informant in Poland for the Elizabethan court reported that the German princes avoided going to war in Poland due to its lack of fortifications. Now, this paradoxically gives us a clue to the Commonwealth's strategic posture. For while fortifications could help defend against an invader, they also helped to shield armies from counterattack, they provided bases of supply, and allowed conquered lands to be held. Polish armies were small in size, but well-trained and far more mobile than their opponents. In effect, the Germans realized they could easily invade Polish territory, but would soon find themselves in a hostile countryside, possibly low on supplies, facing an inevitable counterattack by a mobile foe that had the operational initiative. The Poland's smaller armies not only allowed them to concentrate and move faster, they consumed fewer supplies, which was particularly critical in remote regions where food and fodder were hard to find. Small mobile forces also minimized the impact of disease, one of the deadliest factors in early modern warfare. Uh, As Western Europe and Russia fielded ever larger armies into the 18th century, casualties due to illness, inadequate food, and exposure grew proportionally. Um, for example, during the War of Bavarian Succession in the, uh, in the late, late 1700s, Austria and Russia went to war. Uh, they didn't fight any major battles, but they, both, both sides basically lost the, the equivalent of a, of a complete army to, to disease and, uh, and exposure. So to understand more clearly how the Polish armies were able to overcome their opponents, we have to, have to now examine the various components that made up the Commonwealth forces. Now, the infantry of the Commonwealth were probably the most overlooked part of the army, in part because infantry units were recruited from towns or from peasants, although poorer members of the gentry also served. In addition, the Commonwealth classified many of its infantry as alternately German or Hungarian, leading many later writers to assume the infantry were mainly foreign mercenaries or that infantry was a foreign feature rather than a Polish one. Although many foreigners did serve, uh, the terminology used by the Poles did not refer to ethnic or cultural origin of the troops, but to the dress and the style of equipment that each used. Now, the Hungarian-style units were called haiduks, with the first type of infantry and probably the most important. Uh, organized in a rota of between 100 and 200 men, haiduks wore little in the way of armor, but dressed in Polish or Magyar-style trousers, uh, tunic, and zupan. Most high, most haiduks carried firearms, usually a matchlock, matchlock arquebus, as well as hand weapons such as sabers and axes, this versatile infantry provided fire support for the army, defended prepared positions, but were also used in an offensive capability. Unlike West European counterparts, dukes didn't carry pikes or pole arms, but instead relied on cavalry to protect them from enemy horsemen. Now, the second type of infantry, sometimes described as German-style units, were dressed and equipped in a manner similar to contemporary West European infantry with broad-brimmed hats and tunics, sporting a mixture of firearms and pikes. These units were raised in regiments of 200 to as large as 700. In addition, militia units raised by cities for self-defense were often equipped in this way. German-style units provided strong defense, especially against cavalry, but were also used offensively. By the later 1600s, the distinctions between these two types of infantry began to blur and they began to uh, take on a lot of the similar characteristics to one another. The Hajduks developed more, uh, more pole arms, and the, uh, the, the, the quote-unquote the German-style units uh, uh, developed de- develop more, more uh, for firepower. Another overlooked arm of the Commonwealth Army was the artillery. Although kings maintained a larger artillery park that could be deployed on major campaigns, most Polish field armies had a limited number of cannons. Uh, rarely more than half a dozen, mostly the light pieces that could be deployed quickly, but they were used very in, 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 in an important role in uh, a number of battles, as we'll see. The, the, other, the other arm, of course, the, the, the most well-known arm, is the cavalry. Uh, the winged hussars were the most spectacular of this. Uh, the Commonwealth armies deployed a wide range of mounted troops suited to many situations. The first type they consider were light cavalry. These were sometimes described as Tatar cavalry. Uh, this cavalry were often raised from communities of Lipka Tartars living in Lithuania and eastern Poland. These were descendants of Tatars who had uh, uh, had moved to first the Grand Duchy of Lithuania and later uh, later parts of Poland. Uh, they spoke Polish, but they retained their their Muslim faith. However, not all the Tatar-style units were ethnic Tatars. And the best-known example of this is the famous uh, Lisovići. Uh, uh, so it's a, regular, it's a regular mercenary unit formed by a Polish nobleman, uh, which fought both for and against the Commonwealth, and later as mercenaries uh, for Emperor Ferdinand II during the Thirty Years' War. Uh, the Polish light cavalry, they were, they were infamous for, for when they got to Western Europe for, for looting and uh, all kinds of uh, kind of banditry. Uh, Polish light cavalry rode small, agile horses with great stamina descended from Mongol herds. The men were equipped with sabers, composite bows, or pistols, and sometimes lariats. They were useful for scouting. They were masters of ambushes and raids and able to conceal themselves in, in, open, gra- in open grassland. Um, this was a, a tactic that the, the Tatars had used where you lay your horse down in a, in a field of, of, of high grass. Uh, you can actually conceal a whole troop of horsemen in an, in an, open, an open field this way. The Polish armies employed a couple of Western-style cavalry units as well. Uh, dragoons, and writers. The former were mounted infantry, and the first recorded regiment uh, was raised in the 1630s. The later were heavy cavalry armed with broadswords and firearms. Dragoons appeared to have been recruited from among the peasantry and performed a variety of roles to support either infantry or cavalry operations. Writers were more likely to be foreign auxiliaries, and while a few in number, they appeared to have been held in high regard by the Poles when used to reinforce hussars. A writer unit raised by the Duke of Courland played a key role in the Battle of Kirchholm in 1605. The most numerous type of uh, uh, Polish cavalry were Cossacks. And like the so-called German-Hungarian infantry, the name misleadingly implies an ethnic origin. Armed groups of Zaporozhian Cossacks helped guard the, the Commonwealth's s- southeastern borders and often served in Commonwealth armies, especially in wars against the Tatars, Ottomans, and Muscovites. However, not all Polish army cossacks were cossacks. For again, the references to a style of equipment and organization rather than culture and ethnicity. Many were recruited from Polish gentry. Cossacks in the Polish forces ranged from heavier armored cossacks to lighter cavalry not dissimilar from the, ta- to the Tatars described above. Cossacks were highly adaptable units, which could reinforce hussars in a charge or fight dismounted, acting much like dragoons, though not equipped like their Western counterparts. There's a picture here of the of a, of a armored uh, two types of hussars, light, lighter and heavier hussars. Last but not least are the winged hussars, uh, the most famous of all the Polish formations. They're drawn from the ranks of the gentry and equipped with the best armor and horses. Hussars were heavy cavalry armed with long lances, organized in units of about a hundred called banners. However, Hussars did not really line up and charge enemy ranks, and in fact, their equipment hints at a much more, ta- much more tactical flexibility than we might assume. In addition to a 17-foot lance, which is essentially a singly-used weapon, Hussars carried a war hammer, which was lethal in close-quarter fighting. They also had two swords, a curved saber, and a three-foot-long stabbing sword called a palash. They also carried a variety of firearms, mainly pistols, but also carbines. Hussars were not only well-equipped, but both men and horses were highly trained. Although all male members of the gentry were eligible to be called up for service in times of need, Hussar units that fought in Poland's armies represented only a fraction of that manpower. The Hussar banners represented an elite within an elite. In gentry households of the 15th and 16th centuries, training began in childhood. Children rode almost as soon as they could walk, and lessons in fencing with sabre soon followed, progressing to use of sabre on horseback. Later, the use of the lance, pistol, or bow followed. Those recruited for Hussar banners then trained to ride and fight in formation. The Hussar charges, which are the, the most beloved scene of the novelists and filmmakers, and there's some great movie portrayals, you can look them up on YouTube, uh, were the coup de main on the battlefield. They're used to decisively break enemy resistance. And they were indeed the most impressive display of military power. But a quick glance at the Hussar shock combat reveals their careful choreography and high degree of training and coordination from both men and horses. Where mass cavalry proved vulnerable to missile fire, especially from cannon and muskets, Hussars tended to operate in a much looser formation than did many heavy, heavy cavalry forces, greatly reducing their vulnerability to enemy firepower. Charging hussars would maintain this loose formation until the final moments of the attack when, at command, sometimes within the last 30 to 40 meters of a charge, the hussars would tighten up their spacing, level their lances, and strike the enemy lines at full gallop in a compact mass. In addition to this type of charge, hussars were versatile enough to employ other tactics, including mock charges and perhaps tactics like the caracol. And they did, they did at times also fight dismounted. The types of lancer charges. Described so vividly in novels and movies, were precisely the kind of charges that Western style infantry operating in packed formations equipped with long pole arms supported by muskets and artillery was designed to defeat. In addition, we know that in many battles, Polish armies faced opponents that used terrain hard for horses to traverse or fought in, from behind field fortifications such as ditches, wooden palisades, or chigot de frise and other anti-cavalry obstacles that could easily disembowel a charging horse. One occasionally finds authors who claim that Hussar lances were long enough to reach over pikes carried by most foot soldiers, but this seems unlikely. There's no example of Polish Hussar successfully charging headlong into anti-cavalry obstacles or disciplined intact formations of infantry equipped with pole arms. Such a tactic would have been suicidal, it would have resulted in far higher losses than were the norm for most Commonwealth victories. The Polish commanders well understood the danger such formations presented, and they developed tactics to defeat them in detail. The hussars were a battle-winning weapon, but to use them well required thought and skill. Hussars were deadly against enemy cavalry and against infantry unprepared to meet their attack. Against these foes, the hussars would carry all before them and did so time and again. But to reach that moment of the battlefield, Polish commanders had to shape the battlefield to employ the modern term of art, using a combination of forces and tactics to overcome adverse terrain features, neutralize field defenses, and disrupt prepared formations, especially massed infantry ranks. They did this through a creative combination of infantry, artillery, and cavalry. Now, one of the earliest examples of this combined arms approach was at the Battle of Lubeshov. In in uh, in 1577, Stefan Batorik, Poland's uh, Transylvanian-born warrior king, faced an army raised by the rebellious city of Danzig or Gdansk, built around a large force of German Landsknecht, their their formidable infantry, heavily armed infantry uh, with pike, uh, muskets, uh, heavy swords, and halberds, Landsknecht had been one of the dominant forces on most battlefields uh, in the mid-16th century Western Europe. Facing a Danzig army of 12,000 men, the Tories fielded a mere 2,500, including 1,000 Hajduks. The Tory directed his infantry to, to attack the enemy artillery. As the Hajduks approached the Danzig ranks, they fell flat on the ground to avoid enemy volley fire, then rushed forward, capturing the guns and turning them on their erstwhile, ca- their erstwhile owners. The Danzig Lanzknecht attempted to retake the artillery, but were countercharged by the Polish Hajduks. With the enemy's best infantry engaged, the Tory sent his cavalry led by the hussars to attack the vulnerable rear and flanks of the Danzig army breaking their formation completely. Resistance collapsed and Polish cavalry pursued the survivors almost all the way back to the city walls. The Poles lost less than 200 men while nearly 10,000 enemy were killed or captured. At Kurholm in 1605 a force of 3500 Commonwealth troops under the command of Hetman Jan Karl Chodkiewicz faced this invading Swedish army three times its size under the command of King Charles IX. With their right anchored on the River Divina, and this, is, this, this occurred near the, uh, in modern Latvia near, near Riga, uh, the Swedes placed their infantry in the center with a strong formation of musketeers and several cannon protected by pikemen. The Swedish musketeers had clear interlocking fields of fire, and they were, they were backed by a, a second line of reserves, actually two lines of reserves. A Swedish cavalry positioned behind the infantry to counter any Polish flanking effort. But Kiewicz encountered, the for, encountered with a formation known as the Old Polish Order. Um, this seems to have been based on an earlier Mongol battle array uh, from, the, uh, uh, from, from the Middle Ages, modified for, for modern um, uh, modern use. About a thousand high duke infantry were interspersed with grou- groups of cavalry and, and a few pieces of artillery to make up the front rank of the Polish lines while a second and third rank were made up of all cavalry, including hussars, With the Swedes firmly committed to the defensive, Lodkiewicz used his infantry and cannon to open a harassing fire on the Swedish infantry, trying to provoke a counterattack. But the Swedes kept their discipline and remained in place. The Poles then began to fall back in apparent disarray. Seeing the Poles leave the field, the Swedes began a general advance, drawing them out of their strong position. Hodkiewicz wheeled his cavalry around and attacked with lighter cavalry swinging around the Swedish flanks. Swedish cavalry tried to protect their infantry and even managed to stop one Polish charge but were overwhelmed by a second wave of hussars. Retreating infantry and cavalry disrupted the Swedish reserves, leaving them vulnerable to the pursuing Polish cavalry. Within 20 minutes, the Swedish army collapsed and the Poles cut down thousands of Swedes during the retreat and the king barely escaped to a waiting ship. Kirkholm is a classic example of how Polish commanders, rather than taking on strong enemy formations, taking them head-on, used firepower maneuver and deception to disrupt the enemy, leaving them vulnerable to cavalry attack. In this way, small Polish armies could overcome superior numbers while suffering only modest losses. While Charles IX's army was almost completely destroyed with half its number dead on the field, Budkiewicz's men suffered about 100 dead enemy commanders were well aware of the danger presented by the Polish cavalry and the Hussars in particular, and they sought to nullify this advantage. The which I, I mentioned previously in 1610, the Swedish Muscovite forces of 40,000 while outnumbering their Polish foes 8 to 1, wisely ensconced themselves behind the anti-cavalry obstacles and fences that would provide a secure place to fend off the Polish cavalry. Edmund Zylkewicz, however, was undaunted. With his infantry still en route to the field, he brought up two light guns and began a harassing fire on the enemy lines. His cavalry made several lunges at the Muscovite part of the line, perhaps using a caracal tactic where groups of horsemen would get would gallop forward uh, fire uh, discharge firearms into the massed enemy ranks and then retreat out of range. This led the Muscovite commander, uh, Prince Vasily Shuski to launch a cavalry counterattack, but the the Russian riders were no match for the Polish hussars and the defeat of their cavalry caused the Russian left flank to waver and begin to retreat. By this time, Jolkevich's infantry had arrived. He later wrote, our infantry, not numerous, but tried and experienced in many battles, rushed at them. The infantry attacked the Swedish field defenses, breaking holes in the line to enable the cavalry to charge through, forcing the Swedes to fall back. Panic swept the less disciplined Muscovites who were now pursued relentlessly by the Polish cavalry. The Swedes staged an orderly retreat, and after a brief truce, agreed to surrender and leave Russia and not take up arms. It was a, 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 they, they, they gave, they gave their, 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 uh, their parole for that. Uh, once again, the Commonwealth forces were minimal, while the Muscovite army was virtually annihilated, and the Swedes basically taken off, uh, taken off the board. A similar tactic was used at Hochim in, in 1673 when Commonwealth forces under uh, Hetman Jan Sobieski, and his later King John III, confronted a large Ottoman army in a well-fortified encampment near the the modern-day border of uh, Ukraine and Moldova. Polish infantry attacked the Turkish defenses, and according to one contemporary account, the infantry sapped the embankments. They collapsed in several places. Not even once did the Turks fire their artillery, though they had cannon in great quantity. They stayed mobbed together in the trenches on horseback until our squadrons rode through the breaches we'd made in the embankment. Only then did they they attack our men but could not hold out long. So the Polish hussars charged into the Ottoman camp uh, through the gaps made by the infantry, followed by the other cavalry, who was predictably disastrous results for the Sultan's army. Now, while the infantry seemed to have been the preferred force to deal with fixed defenses, Cavalry could also be used, especially in cases where the enemy did not have enough time to throw up a complete set of works. At the Battle of Rival in 1602, 1602, Polish light cavalry rode around the Swedish defenses and attacked from the rear. In the ensuing confusion, the main body of Polish hussars staged a successful frontal attack to win the battle. Perhaps the best example of early modern Polish tactics was the Battle of Vienna. In 1683. The uh, massive Ottoman army of 115,000 laid siege to the Habsburg capital and was close to taking the beleaguered city. A relief army of about 45,000 under the command of King Jan III Sobieski, leading a combined force of Polish, Bavarian, Saxon, and imperial troops, approached the city in early September. Sobieski was the obvious choice not only due to his superior standing as king but also to his distinguished combat record. Sobieski was perhaps the last great general in the old tradition of the Commonwealth. In, in, 16, in 1672, as Poland faced massive Ottoman invasion and Parliament dithered over how to respond, Sobieski, then crowned Hetman, took a force of 3,000 men deep behind Turkish lines, defeated forces seven times larger than his own, freed 40,000 Christian captives, and thoroughly disrupted the Ottoman war effort. Sobieski approached Vienna from the west, which provided the quickest route to the city, but also presented the worst terrain for the type of cavalry battles at which the Poles excelled. On September the 11th, 1683, the Allied forces reached Mount Kallenberg, overlooking Vienna. Turkish commander Kara Mustafa has been criticized by generations of historians for not shifting enough forces to face the threat from Kallenberg. But this overlooks the fact that Allied forces would have great difficulty developing a quick attack against the main body of the Ottoman army. While the area around the city and the Ottoman camp was open ground, the slopes of Kahlenberg were interlaced with many ridges and ravines with numerous vineyards, walled pastures, and small villages. Kara Mustafa allocated enough forces to delay the Allied advance as he concentrated for a final attack on Vienna, who would break the city's defenses and then allow him to turn and face the relief army. He kept a large reserve force ready to respond to any any unexpected developments. At least that seems to have been his plan. Sobieski placed his German troops on the left flank, with their their flank protected by the Danube. Uh, This would be the most direct route to the city. On the right, his Polish forces would have to traverse the most difficult terrain of Kallenberg slopes, and would thus not be able to develop their attack for a couple of hours after the Germans began their battle. The Saxons and Bavarians began their attack at about 800 hours, hours, aiming toward a series of Ottoman-held villages. Over the next couple hours of hard fighting, they would press the Turks back, forcing Kara Mustafa to gradually commit reserves to slow their advance. Now, A quick look at the map um, shows the dilemma that Sobieski is presenting to the Turks. Allowing the German troops to advance to the city walls would have opened a route to the city and lifted the siege but every man committed to stop their advance placed them in a box between the relief army, the Danube, and the city walls, and away from the main axis of the attack that Sobieski planned. By noon, the Poles began their part of the battle. To clear the rough terrain of defenders, Sobieski sent in his infantry, again the infantry, supported by dragoons and dismounted Cossacks. Artillery also played a role with Polish gunners dragging their guns behind the advancing infantry. As the foot soldiers marched down into ravines and prepared to assault the next set of ridges, gunners fired over their heads, blasting Ottoman defenders with a combination of solid and k-shot. Around four in the afternoon, Sobieski's men had reached the open ground before the city. After repelling a final enemy counterattack, the Hussar banners began to deploy. On the Allied left, the Germans continued their push, pinning uh, pinning the Ottoman defense in place. Kara Mustafa committed his reserves to shore up his left, now facing the brunt of the Polish army. At about 5 p.m., an estimated 1,800-18,000 cavalry led by 3,000 winged hussars commanded by the king and his son, Prince Alexander, began their attack, starting under just 400 meters from the mass Turkish ranks, by now increasingly demoralized. And Jesus Maria Ratui, the hussar cavalry began to walk, then broke into a trot, then a canter. The formation remained loose until within the final 50 meters. At a command, the Polish horses broke into a gallop and the Hussar formation closed to an armored wedge, breaking the ottoman line with lethal effect. Turkish defenses collapsed as Hussars crashed through their ranks. Following ranks of armored Cossacks and Dragoons, joined by imperial writers, exploited the breach. Efforts to stem the Polish advance failed, and to add insult to injury, the city's battered garrison launched a sortie into, into the Turkish rear. Within an hour, the Ottoman army was in full flight back to Europe, back to Hungary, ending the last great uh, Muslim threat to Europe of the early modern era. The extraordinary success of the Commonwealth armies in the 16th and 17th centuries has been overshadowed by the decline and fall of the nation, symbolized by the political paralysis of the Saxon era and the partitions between 1772 and 1794. Despite this, the achievements of the Polish military, and despite the achievements of the Polish military, its structure contained some key flaws. Despite the, uh, by design, the Poland lacked a strong executive to lead and champion the military and its development. Instead of, instead, the military leadership and many of the key formations that made up the army were drawn from the schlachter service. This large and and disparate group ranged in wealth and social status, but again, was defined but united by a shared sense of virtue based on Christian morality, and drawing on, by the way, examples of the Roman Republic. Courage, courage, charity, and service to the nation were guiding principles. Like the Christian knights of the Middle Ages, the Polish gentry were to respect God, defend the church, protect the weak, and the other non-military classes. Valor and martial skill were prized, but not for personal and dynastic glory. Uh, and, and as long as they were acting in concert in unison, uh, they would act in concert in unison with each other. Um, the infamous and much, much understood liberal veto of the Polish Sejm was rarely invoked until the 18th century because major disagreements among the gentry over important legislation that could not be resolved through discussion and compromise were still very rare. As long as this sense of unity remained intact, the Commonwealth had a strong military and political cast at its helm. Yet throughout the course of the 17th century, this arrangement came under increasing strain, began to show signs of fraying. The reign of King Zygmunt III Vasa, who passed away in 1632, was marked by a series of conflicts between King and Parliament, as Zygmunt sought to use his Polish throne to regain power in Sweden. Despite vigorous opposition among many in the Parliament, the King managed to drag Poland into a series of conflicts with Sweden, Muscovy, and the Ottoman Empire which resulted in damage to the political system, much destruction and loss of life with no gain to anyone. More distressingly, enemies like Sweden began to adopt, adapt the Polish military strengths by avoiding battle in the open field and concentrating on seizing towns and cities of the Baltic coast, squeezing off Poland's overseas commerce. Division among the gentry grew, especially among the wealthier magnates and, and, and the mass of common gentry. Unlike many of its West European contemporaries, Poland avoided major confessional wars, but the growth of Calvinism among the gentry and disputes among Eastern right Christians also divided the shlakhta. Efforts to expand the gentry and give some rights to registered Cossacks were a major source of friction, with wealthier magnates preferring to keep newcomers out, while monarchs and many members of the lesser gentry favored growth to dilute the power of the magnates. In the middle of the 17th century, a series of shocks the caused the near collapse of the Commonwealth. A major revolt of the Zaporozhian Cossacks hit the Commonwealth in the interregnum following the death of King uh, King Vladislav IV in 1648. Commonwealth armies were ill-prepared and proved initially unable to quell the rebellion, which caused massive life and destruction throughout Ukraine as Cossacks were joined by peasants and Tatars in killing and enslaving Poles and Jews. Although the rebellion was finally defeated in 1651, the conflict drew Muscovy into the fray as the Tsar sought to exploit divisions among the Cossacks to gain control over parts of Ukraine. This in turn led to a renewed war with Sweden, which sought to exploit Poland's troubles. A group of Lithuanian magnates were enticed to break away and re-establish the Grand Duchy of Lithuania under Swedish control. Swedish armies rapidly seized much of the western and central parts of Poland and large parts of Lithuania. However, as the German princes had observed half a century earlier, invading the Commonwealth and controlling it were quite different things. Poland's lack of centralized authority made control difficult and Polish forces began to recover while Swedish strength became increasing, increasingly dissipated and looting and lawlessness became rampant, sparking further resistance. Bands of Swedish troops looting and forging in the countryside found themselves confronting not only Polish soldiers, but also swarms of enraged peasants who were particularly incensed by the Swedish desecration of Catholic churches and shrines. While the Commonwealth was finally restored by the mid-1660s, Years of intermittent warfare left a gravely weakened and internal The Sobieski's victories at Hochim and Vienna demonstrated the Commonwealth was still able to field highly competent generals and armies until the end of the 17th century. This appears to have been increasingly difficult to maintain, although many gentry families were. Uh, continued the, the practice of training their, their sons for uh, uh, for military service, uh, many did not. Attempts to mobilize the gentry in mass often resulted in ill disciplined but rather contentious and privileged armies whose soldiers' lack of skill was an inverse proportion to their social standing. During the Himelnitsky Rebellion, hastily organized Commonwealth armies, often an admixture of uh, private magnate forces and levy in mass of local gentry, suffered a string of disasters ex- 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 exacerbated by its ex- inexperienced leaders. By the 1700s, Polish military was in a state of serious decay caused by corruption, foreign influence, and lack of funding. Under the Saxon kings August I and his son August the 3rd, Poland functionally lost its independence and became a virtual satrapy of Russia. Units like the winged hussars became a kind of parody of their former glory. In his memoir of life during the reign of August the 3rd, Father Janji Kitovich wrote, Hussars were employed not employed for expeditions other than to accompany some lord's entry into his, into his voivodeship or to, attend, or, or to attend his funeral. For that reason, the hussars and armored companies were sometimes called burial companies. Only toward the end of the 18th century, under the reign of King Stanisław August Poniatowski, did Poland undertake a few tentative steps toward reforming its military. This effort was too little and too late to reverse the decline of the country's military forces. The military establishment of the Commonwealth reflected the strength of its political class, which was at its height of its power in the 16th and early 17th centuries. During this period, Europe experienced rapid advances in military technology and tactics. Far from being a backwater, Polish commanders of the era were well-versed in Western military arts, which they adapted to local conditions and added insights and experience gained from fighting the Tatar descendants of the Mongol hordes in the vast open lands of the Kresi. A small but formidable corps of infantry and artillery provided firepower and the ability to crack open strongly held positions and fix opposing forces in place. A combination of light and medium cavalry, along with the heavier winged hussars, provided speed, mobility, and striking power. A combination of units and tactics allowed Polish commanders to disrupt far larger and stronger enemy forces, then use their cavalry to finish off their foes. Obscured by the destruction of Poland in the late 1700s, and distorted by generations of romantic authors and artists, the military of the Polish Commonwealth was in its day flexible, modern, and lethal. And so with that, I think we're about uh, time here uh, uh, to, for, for me to finish my part. Um, and I would be happy to answer any questions you might have uh, and uh, regarding uh, this topic or uh, early modern Poland or whichever you, whichever you wish to ask.
0: Yeah, so if you have any questions, um, please feel free to comment in the Q&A portal. Um, we do have some questions here. Did the king have a major powder mill for his artillery?
1: Yes, there was actually several powder mills established and usually major fortresses. Um, there was Warsaw, Warsaw had one later on, but also, I um, uh, mean, it's Podolsk, uh, which is one of the major fortresses of the Southeast had a had a powder mill and there was one in Lithuania as well.
0: Um, another question, did the Jews in the Commonwealth fight in the armies? What were the terms of their service compared to poles?
1: Uh, generally no the um, well the Jews, the Jews actually fought in town militias uh, and so they would be they would be organized uh, within and there were a number of cases particularly during the himmolitsky rebellion where there are there are units of Jews that are organized in cities uh, to defend the given sections of the wall. Uh, but generally, most of the classes of the the, the peasants served only in, in a sense in the in the lesser ranks. Uh, people in the towns, the townsmen, who serve in militias as well, but generally were excluded from uh, general military service. Uh, so, and and that actually included a number of other religious minorities. Uh, there were a number of Protestant, very small Protestant groups uh, that found shelter in the Commonwealth because, again, the relative. Relative tolerance, uh, and so you had groups of Anabaptists who were essentially pacifists. uh, The the ancestors of Mennonites uh, who were also exempted from military service. Um, In return, however, those communities, and the Jews in particular, paid an additional tax that went to support the the military. Okay, um, I don't see any other questions. If anyone has a
0: question, feel free to... Um. Comment now. Um,
1: we'll give it a few seconds. See if anyone has anything else. Okay. And the, sorry. And, no, I would say you know. I, I mean, one of the, one of the things that, that interests people most about this this uh, this topic and follow up on on the question is is the, is the position of the religious minorities in Poland because unlike most of Western Europe, there was a we we would call it relative tolerance, not tolerance in the modern sense of the word. Uh, but it was tolerance really for religious communities uh, rather than for um, uh, individual, what we would think of today as modern individual conscious. Uh, so the, um, so if you were uh, a member of say uh, a Lutheran community, as long as you obeyed the strictures of the Lutheran church, uh, you were fine. If you deviated from the strictures of the Lutheran church uh, and you were a Lutheran, you, you would be in trouble with the authority. Uh, so it was a, peculiar kind of tolerance that to, the to uh and uh, rather rather than an individual tolerance, it was a, it was a tolerance for groups, uh, and um, the uh, the stat the status of Jews in particular uh, is notable now that they had they had a form of self-government, um, and so uh, uh, part of part of that part of the deal, if you will, was that they were not also not part of the, uh, you know, in a sense, li- liable um, and and. And in truth, by the way, being exempted from military service in this period was, uh, was a good thing. Uh, most ordinary people um, did not, you know, wars were a catastrophe. Uh, you didn't want to send your sons to to, to combat. Uh, that was a loss of manpower in your household. So, so most ordinary people uh, preferred <laughs> to stay out of that. Uh, so it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, uh, didn't didn't quite have the aura that I. I some some uh, modern writers might uh, might have this think.
0: Okay, we did have a question. In. Um, it feels like recently Poland is finally getting back an ability to control its own destiny after so many centuries since the periods you discussed. Is that correct in your opinion?
1: I think so. I mean, obviously, in our in our world today, you know, how, how much how, how much control a country uh, relatively modest. We're not. It's not huge. It's not. It's not small. Uh, has uh, you know is um, uh, maybe a matter of, matter of question, uh, but it's it, it clearly is the case since since 1989. Uh, but especially in the last in the last decade uh, or so, there's been a uh, increasing assertiveness on the polls that they they are not they're, they're not simply you know going to be incorporated into Europe uh, like they were incorporated into the to the Soviet Imperium previously but they they really want to write the terms of that that relationship and I also think uh, it's one of the most important and I, I know you've had uh, at IWP and through the constitutional chair numerous uh, programs uh, related to this um, is, is the recovery of Polish history uh, and aspects of Polish history that were ignored during the long period of communist rule uh, particularly with regards to uh, communist repression in Poland. Uh, there's a, a, a tremendous effort to, uh, to to find and identify victims of uh, of communist terror uh, during the uh, uh, during the period at the end from the end of end of the Second World War up to uh, up through the 1990s. Uh this is at a you know it, it doesn't get a lot of press in the West, but it, it's had a tremendous I mean a, a tremendous and I think positive impact uh on uh on the way Poles see themselves and see their past um and so uh, I think it was John Paul II in a sense said that you know that that recover the recovery of the past you, you know having an authentic history is very important uh to your to your sense of who you are and your place in the world and, and being confident and being able to uh, uh you know be a, a, a truly independent nation uh rather than being uh, Uh, Since cycle, you know, feeling that you're just a sort of an appendage of of Europe, uh, which is how many Poles felt, uh, certainly in the the years immediately after 1989.
0: Another question. Um, The Poles opponents in your battle case studies appear to have surrendered the initiative. Were they intimidated by the reputation of the strong Polish cavalry?
1: Yes, in most cases they seem to have um because they were far less mobile uh and uh, even even when, even when they outnumbered the uh the Polish forces, uh they, they seemed to have preferred to let the Poles attack and they had a pretty good sense that the Poles would attack. Uh the um in the case of the Battle of Kirkholm, uh uh and it I, I didn't go into the, the sort of the, the sort of a backstory that Hodkevich's forces were um hadn't been paid in a while um, and he needed to to win quickly <laughs> in order to uh, uh prevent his army from from breaking up and actually a- after the battle the number number of his troops went home because they hadn't been paid in a while because parliament uh, as you know you know parliaments often are uh hadn't been uh paying uh, paying its bills as as it should have been uh so often Polish armies you know were uh, needed to take the initiative uh and um, and it's, and it's quite clear that, uh, and in a number of cases, the, the, the Turks did attack the Poles in a number of instances. Uh, but uh, you know, Polish armies tend to be far more mobile than their opponents, and so they they were able to to have the have the initiative, uh, both uh, tactically and, and in a sense strategically as well. Uh, so they, they were they were able to get to the battlefield quicker uh, and in a sense choose. Uh, choose the terms of engagement uh, more often than their opponents.
0: Very interesting, thank you. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's all the questions that we have. Um, I would like to thank Dr. Radulofsky for joining us today and all of you who tuned in here on Zoom and Facebook. If you're interested in attending other upcoming webinar events, supporting IWP or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to IWP.edu. Again, that's IWP.edu. Also, stay tuned for more lecture events from our 10th Annual Kosciuszko Chair Spring Symposium. Thanks, everyone.
1: Thank you. Thank
0: you.